Hello there, welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Bohain. This is part two of our podcast around cryptocurrency, blockchain, and what might be the future of digital finance in the Pacific. In the first episode, we talked about what Bitcoin is and how some countries in the region, like Palau and Tonga, are already adapting to this fast-moving technology, weighing up the pros and cons of its introduction. We left off episode one with Lord Fusitua trying to allay some of the security concerns about Bitcoin and cryptos in general. So now I'd like to pick up the conversation again with Josh. Now, Josh, you've spoken about some of the positive aspects of blockchain and direct payments to people in the aftermath of natural disasters. But what are your concerns? Are there any potential dangers to the rollout of digital currencies and blockchain in the region? We get things mixed up when we start not understanding the difference between identity and an account. Um, so for transactions, um, as uh, Lord Fusatua said already, that um, cash, you don't have any identity, but you have two accounts. You know, you, I can give money to somebody on the street. I may not know who that person is, but the, and it's impossible to trace. Um, so... From that side of things, it's not a concern. Um, most legitimate ways to use um, any cryptocurrency, you have to have an identity tied to an account. Um, it's very rigorous. Um, and so that, that side of things I'm, I'm not concerned about. The, the standard concern around um, proof of work being bad for the environment as a consensus mechanism and so forth, I think... Um, is, is a problem at the moment and, and I think that there's a lot of work underway to try and resolve some of that, for example, using geothermal energy or other renewables. And in that sense, um, it could actually be a positive for the planet in driving um, investment in renewables. And there's lots of other different consensus mechanisms out there for different chains. GoChain um, is, is one, I know, Ripple, um, Ripple XPR is another. There's there's more and more different offerings. I mean, we're not back in, you know, just in 2015, there were really, six years ago, there were two offerings, um, two different choices in blockchain technology. Now there's thousands um, with very different functionalities. Um, and so on the, you know, on the risk side of things, yeah, I don't see... Much, I think the the major risk is that, um, as with many technologies, the technology uh, advances and is developed and it develops faster than um, we can keep up with, and so you get um, a lag between you. You start to see differences in early adopters and people that understand the tech and some of the challenges, and those that don't. And that can be um, a problem for if if you don't have the the accompanying literacy and the accompanying effort to to understand the the drawbacks and the positives of and the opportunity that the the drawbacks and the positive sides that the technology can bring. Um, and so we've we've found that at Oxfam, for example, um, to try and get the leadership and the executive across the line when you know the go-to is well, 
Bitcoin scariness used by criminals, no, we can't touch that, um, has been part of, has been the major challenge. And I think that that, in my experience, um, is, is replicated in most organizations. The UN's using the tech. Um, you know, the, the OECD has a blockchain group now um, to, to try and understand this. So there's a lot more effort going into um, being much more intentionally uh, and much more intentionally examining the technology um, so that uh, it doesn't get ahead of, of our capabilities and our understanding. We can, we can shape its development for social good. One of the points that gets raised around this issue is um, that so many people in the world are unbanked, particularly in poor and developing countries. Do you see some benefit to the adoption of, of digital payment systems as a way to, to get a lot more people, you know, properly banked and so that they can participate in, a, in, a, in an economy and in a financial system? That's part of the, the beauty of this is you don't need the banks. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about to participate in, in a formal economy, then I think it does leapfrog and get around some of the challenges that banks pose um, and gives you much greater flexibility in the use of, of some of that. Um, so, for example, in Vanuatu, um, the, having the identity linked to the account for... The work that we've been doing there using um, blockchain to provide digital payments to after disasters just the linking of the identity in the account enables um, people to be able to check we, we've had um, some parts of government ask us that that ability can you then use that to check whether people are getting the assistance that they are due from the government. So in, in this particular case, it was um, people with that we've registered and put on the system, would it be possible for that had disabilities, people living with disabilities, they're due visits by government employees every month or however frequently. Um, can you use this system to, to tell, to verify whether they had those visits in a really cost-effective way? And so then that opens up further opportunities. So there's there's lots and lots of different ways in which um, having you know, a bank account in this sense and an account that you can use money um, can have you know, a ripple effect in, in improving people's lives far beyond just being able to take part in the, in the formal financial sector. And just one last thing on that front. Um, you mentioned earlier, Ben, about the DeFi, decentralized finance. And I think we're in the early stages of what that can offer. At the moment, it's replicating the same financial services that banks provide. And so uh, if you participate in this, you, you, you're not at a loss for options. I think what we'll see in the next five to 10 years is the types of um, financial products and offers uh, and flexibility that DeFi brings, we'll start to see some really creative and innovative ways to for people to participate in the decentralized financial economy um, that, that does address the needs of 
the unbanked, the, the smaller asset holders, the people with only $10 in their account. Um, and I think, you know, similar to what we did with um, farmers in Sri Lanka, giving people that flexibility, I think, is a good thing. Lord Fusatua, just wanted to come to you sort of on, on a couple of these points. You know, obviously there's people might be aware of cryptocurrencies and the way that, you know, people are using them. But equally now it seems like governments are looking to get into the game as a way of almost competing with these cryptocurrencies by establishing CBDCs and stable coins. Is that something that you think Tonga is going to look at? I mean, we've just had news about Palau adopting a, a CBDC. Do you see this as something that's that's going to take off and, and a number of Pacific governments are, are going to start looking at developing their own stable coins? For us, no. Um, CBDCs uh, provide the worst possible aspects of fiat currency and the worst possible aspect of a digital currency. They're unlimitedly printable like a fiat currency, but they are extremely uh, monitorable, traceable, lockable, uh, and uh, as a digital currency. So the government can say, I don't, I can tell that you bought uh, cigarettes this month so after a certain level your card's not going to work to buy cigarettes or alcohol anymore uh, because uh, Tonga and Samoa are the two most obese planets uh, countries on the planet and have the highest rates of NCDs so we can impose health policy uh, using a CBDC if we want which is great for us as legislators and policymakers but not so much for you uh, in your civil rights. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, for me, CBDCs uh, defeat the purpose of having a cryptocurrency. Uh, DeFi, decentralised finance, uh, before getting to the finance part, you've got to make sure it's decentralised. So the article you sent me that was done by the ABC, uh, Priyanka and I had a two-hour-long talk uh, and you will see in the article that my concern is specifically, so that would be, if back to your earlier question, problems with cryptocurrencies, uh, cryptocurrencies that are centrally controlled, getting a hold in the Pacific. Okay? As I said, digital scarcity can only be discovered once, uh, and it's already been discovered. So everything else has one, two, three, four, or all, uh, group of people that entirely control its destiny. Okay? Vitalik Buterin can turn around tomorrow and decide the fate of Ethereum by himself. Uh, and Aya Miyaguchi, uh, who's on the Ethereum Foundation, is also on, uh, on the board of the World Economic Forum, uh, which is uh, the citadel for legacy uh, fiat central Rothschild central banking that uh, be, that finance nation state actors in the G7 uh, on a, 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 a head of the executive level uh, nation state actors. So um, ensuring that uh, those influences behind fiat central banking. Uh, begin to get diluted in the Pacific would be a good thing. Uh, so, for instance, uh, 
the Palau uh, example is uh, Ripple and XRP. There's a reason that um, the SEC took them to court because it's effectively an unregistered security. Uh, it's controlled by a small group of people. Uh, so if you're a security, then you have to comply with... If you, if you satisfy the Howey test, then necessarily you should have to comply with some kind of securities legislation. So that's one of the issues, uh, as uh, Josh raised, that lag between the uh, technology's uh, progress and the ability of regulators to keep up with it is going to be about a five-year gap constantly uh, of legislators trying to catch up with the advances in the technology. Uh, Taproot, which was adopted last week uh, on Bitcoin, uh, provides... Uh, a transaction for buying a cup of coffee and a multi-seed transaction with 25 signatories holding different keys on different continents, that transaction will have the same size on the blockchain as buying a cup of coffee under Taproot. Uh, so these advances are, have not been anticipated by the regulators yet. Uh, Taproot's ability to do smart contracts, time-locked transactions, um, the Schnorr uh, signatures which we use uh, uh, enable you to bring up a multitude of signatures into a signal, uh, signature and use it as if it's a simple transaction. I'm, yeah, I don't want to get too nerdy and technical with you. But, yeah, the capabilities. Yeah, I, I, I like to be able to bring it back to how this is sort of practically going to impact, you know, grassroots people in the Pacific. Imagine you're a, you're a taro farmer on an island, you know, either in Tonga or, or, or in Vanuatu. How are they going to be best served by this technology? Is it, is it through a decentralized finance system where they've got, they can trade any crypto or, or through some sort of government based currency that's going to support them? For us, um, because I am uh, a civil liberties advocate, uh, a CBDC uh, would not be the answer for me because I think it would infringe on the, the citizens' rights uh, as much as it would be uh, convenient for me as a legislator and a policymaker to be able to regulate for it. Uh, it would uh, provide too much of a temptation uh, for a cabinet uh, to make use of. So if you're a poor farmer uh, in Tonga, uh, the first um, answer to your problems is that remittance dependency solution. So you get $100 instead of $70. Okay? And uh, you get $100, that's already claimable now. So uh, you can have a Bitcoin... Uh, KYC free wallet in less than 60 seconds, I can have uh, a, a Moon or Wallet of Satoshi on a farmer's cell phone uh, and give him 20,000 Satoshis that he can uh, redeem at a local Chinese shop. I'm not sure whether you guys know. So Tonga is 5% ethnically Chinese now uh, and they are Tongan nationals now. So they transact in an app called WeChat, which is used in China to transact in digital fiat. So making the transition from that to, to Satoshi's was not too difficult for them. So over two thirds of those Chinese shops will cash you out in Bitcoin, 
because they're stacking sets for themselves. Uh, these groups of Chinese merchants uh, historically gather into guilds uh, and stack fiat themselves. So they are doing the same uh, with cryptocurrency. So you're able to spend it. Uh, this is an entirely commercial solution which doesn't require endorsement by the central bank or an act of parliament. It just requires participating vendors to accept uh, your currency. So their argument is we accept it as, as a foreign currency, just as we would USD or AUD. Uh, so that's in the central bank's uh, claim, which if it, it knew the extent of the spread of this, would probably argue that they are acting as financial brokers uh, and require financial services operators license uh, would, I believe, be unfounded. So to your question, the practicality for uh, a fisherman or a farmer is, as I said, he gets the whole of the remittance, he gets it immediately, and he can save in a protocol that increases at 200% per annum. Uh, and then uh, he can become part of, uh, which would be the plan, uh, to have uh, equity, social equity by the entire country in the mining process. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's just a matter of, of rolling it out. Uh, we have a 26-member house. In a 26-member house, 14 is a majority. The Lords, there are nine of us. We vote in a block, so that's nine out of 14. Three members of the legislature already have contact with the asset through their own journeys. That's 12 out of 27. So out of the other 14, uh, you only need two votes to get four, a majority of 14. So when you get up in Parliament and tell the entire country, I'm going to put 30% extra disposable income in your pocket, uh, and you challenge someone, because our parliamentary sessions are broadcast internationally to the entire diaspora, uh, and you challenge someone to tell the entire Tongan diaspora that you do not agree to give them 30% extra disposable income, um, yeah, I'd be happy to see the politician that will take that bet. Very interesting. You, you, you spoke about the Chinese community, and that's a good segue into my next question, which is China has developed its own digital yuan. Uh, I believe that's already been launched and there's been billions of transactions, but it hasn't really uh, become apparent yet. How do you view China using its digital yuan as a, as a kind of economic uh, tool for the future? And, and how is that going to impact the US dollar as, as the global reserve currency? So uh, every year, uh, China flies over um, half a dozen MPs, uh, cabinet members, and the heads of government departments to Beijing uh, from the Pacific countries. Uh, April uh, is always us. So you fly over to Beijing, uh, and they put you uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and sell you the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is, uh, yeah, obviously um, their right to do. Uh, China makes no qualms about the fact that they believe uh, the 19th century was the British Empire, the 20th century was American imperialism, uh, and they are claiming the 21st century, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts, as China's. Uh, China doesn't plan in terms of... Uh, election cycles, or even in terms of generations. Chinese planning is in terms of centuries. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is a couple of centuries long development plan. Uh, 
before we had a full embassy in China. Uh, for two years, I was the honorary consul for our country in Beijing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, their plan uh, is to, and they have already begun. So the production rails that the World Bank and the IMF laid out for the G7 in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and emerging markets uh, to make sure sub-Saharan Africa remained as a mine uh, to be extracted uh, to the metropolitan countries uh, for cheap raw resources and then um, uh, processed and sold back as manufactured goods at a profit. Uh, and the same which was done to uh, the Caribbean, South America and the Pacific to turn us into plantations uh, and aquariums for cheap uh, resources to the metropolitan countries uh, and processed and sold back at a profit. Uh, the World Bank and the IMF keeping everyone in those debt traps uh, and those uh, import dependencies uh, meant that uh, the G7 nations were fed. So China has completely uh, replaced those rails with its own. Uh, its cobalt mines in Ghana, its gold mines in South Africa, its marine interests in the Pacific and its agricultural interests in South America. Uh, and the fact that 54% of non-American farms in the United States, in the continental United States, are Chinese-owned, uh, they they've laid out their production rails to replace the World Bank's and the IMF's. Uh, and the, fi uh, uh, the fiscal aspect of that is to push uh, the digital yuan as the world reserve currency. Uh, that is its ultimate objective. So the fact that it has a wharf in Solomon Islands, uh, which sort of is going to go back to Chinese control and sort of uh, just coincidentally is big enough to receive an aircraft carrier, uh, meant that it possibly wasn't meant as a domestic wharf from the outset. Uh, those pushes, I think, mean that, uh, yeah, as tinfoil hat as it may sound, I think Bitcoin or a form, uh, what ends up being the apex cryptocurrency uh, is the United States in particular and the West bootstrapping themselves to that uh, is their best uh, chance of retaining world reserve currency status uh, in the next, say, two to three decades. I think the 4 billion people in emerging markets turning to Bitcoin on the Lightning Network or cryptocurrency uh, to escape GDP uh, remittance dependence and hyperinflation will propel by its sheer numerical uh, volume, propel adoption over the next decade. Uh, and the liquidity that's pouring in from both institutional uh, and nation state actors in the developed world will go hand in hand with that propulsion. Uh, and I think uh, for that reason, the G7 nations will need to bootstrap themselves to that propellant uh, to maintain world reserve currency status because uh, China is in, uh, as I said, no ifs, ands or buts, is pushing for the digital one. It sounds like you're, you're sort of looking at the lines of a, of a real economic war that's unfolding in, in sort of a, a digital economic space, if you like. So how, how will 
China's digital yuan impact the Pacific, for instance? Is it already being used in the in the Pacific? It's uh, its use uh, will, as I said, uh, China plans in terms of centuries, so they don't come with uh, extremely uh, formalized, upfront, in-your-face demands. Uh, the the expansion of their sphere of influence is very subtle. Uh, its opponents say insidious, uh, I would say subtle. Um, Tonga, for instance, two-thirds of our national debt is Chinese held. Uh, that's a great transition from what used to be World Bank held. Uh, the five eyes for the past five decades have not done infrastructure. So if you want a hospital, a road or a school, then uh, it used to be the EU and that's wound down. Uh, it's pretty much China. If you're looking for infrastructure, then China is, is where you're going to look. So the five eyes, uh, five eyes have been complacent for the past five decades and have allowed uh, that expansion uh, into the Pacific. So the use of the digital one is being pushed by that amount of debt being held. Uh, if you go to up here, I'm not sure if you've been to Tonga, uh, Liam, that main uh, beachfront road that runs from one end of the capital to the other, uh, a pier has a similar one. Uh, and if you go to a pier from one end to the other, there is no government building that is not Chinese built. Um, in, so I went back last year after having been gone for three years and the whole um, cityscape had changed. So the fact that the amount of debt that's held in the Pacific uh, is two thirds to three quarters with China will have an impact uh, on the spread of their, their currency. Uh, the other impact is that at any moment in time, there is there are about 17,000 IUU, uh, illegal, unreported uh, and unregistered Chinese vessels in the Pacific, uh, illegally fishing our tuna. Uh, so they're not only fishing our tuna, but they're the, they're the transport fleet for the triads to bring China white and human traffic out of China and towards the United States West Coast. Uh, so they push, they have uh, informal base stations throughout the Pacific uh, and they uh, use uh, yuan when they go and uh, buy and sell. Uh, so um, using that as an informal uh, channel to push a digital one, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but it's that that channel is definitely there. I think it will be more because of the large scale debt, um, and China could very well say uh, our debt is now payable uh, in yuan, uh, so you have to buy up yuan with your foreign reserves uh, if you want to pay us back our debt. So yeah, there are a couple of uh, I wouldn't call attack vectors, uh, but um, there are a couple of points of failure uh, for. Uh, Pacific legislators and policymakers. I'll uh, I'll wrap this up because I've taken a lot of your time, but it's been a fascinating discussion. So, just very quickly, as a final question, do you see decentralized finance, crypto, as being ultimately a net benefit for the Pacific in in the years ahead? Josh, final thoughts on whether it's a net benefit for the Pacific? Yeah, sure. I think it is a net benefit for the Pacific and and for the world and. Uh, 
as Lord Fustua said, some of the criticisms around energy usage, I think, um, can be easily dealt with and could actually be a, a net gain in terms of investment in renewable energy. Um, the, the flexibility and the diversity of options available in the Pacific because of the, the rise of blockchain technology and, and cryptocurrencies more particularly, I think, are, are incredibly positive. And I think the other thing that um, doesn't get mentioned often is I've not been involved in many um, innovations or a, you know, massive advanced technology, the rise of various different advanced technologies. But my understanding is that rarely is civil society so heavily involved in the development of an advanced digital technology. And the fact that um, the way these communities of developers work um, and the decentralized and distributed ethos of the technology plays out in the communities that develop the technology as well. And so we have, um, you know, Oxfam's been involved in the development of the, the technology itself, as have legislators, as have um, governments and very diverse communities scattered all the way around the world and civil rights organisations and civil society organisations. Um, and I think that that is, will continue to improve the technology for the benefit of Pacific communities and there's many, um, many groups and, and individuals and collectives in the Pacific developing blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies as we speak for uses that, that serve their purposes and improve their lives. And I think that is a, a net gain, a net positive. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'd like to thank our two guests, Lord Fuzitua from Tonga and Josh Hallwright, blockchain advisor to Oxfam. Thank you both very much for joining us. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, and our Facebook page, for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohane. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.